about your patient with rectal cancer and liver mets? The gentleman that we met was 65 years old, and he presented uh, approximately six months ago with YAC-positive stool. At that time, a colonoscopy was recommended, but the patient declined. About two months later, he developed thinning of his stools with constipation and progressive rectal bleeding. He ultimately had a colonoscopy. He was found to have a large bulky mass in the distal sigmoid and proximal rectum, and there was partial occlusion of the lumen. On physical examination at the time, he had a low-lying hard circumferential mass, and a biopsy was positive for a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma. He was imaged prior to surgery and was found to have two lesions in the liver, both in the left lobe. Within the sigmoid colon, there was an 8-centimeter mass, and there was invasion of the presacral space. He also had a 2.8-centimeter adjacent perirectal mass, which was felt to be a necrotic node, as well as numerous subcentimeter masses that were, again, felt to be involved nodes. He had no ascites, no peritoneal masses. On PET scan, there was increased uptake in the rectus sigmoid in the area that was with known disease, as well as the liver metastases. Of note, he had no other evidence of metastatic disease. John, how would you have thought through this situation? Yeah, I mean, our first thought is, is this patient curable? Is there a potentially curative option for this patient? So first job is, can we cure you? Second job is, can we save your tail? Patients have a strong interest in avoiding colostomies and maintaining rectal continence and the like. So those are the two highest priorities. And in a guy like this with two liver mets, a rectal lesion, you know, based on PET and other imaging, you know, this is a guy who our goal is to cure, second, save his tail. Kurt, what was your assessment in terms of the potential curability in terms of the liver lesions? Did your surgeon think that they would be resectable? No, this was actually something that Dr. Marshall and I discussed. The surgeon that was involved in his care did not feel that these were easily removable lesions. He is a general surgeon, and he's a good colorectal surgeon, but does not do a lot of liver resections. You know, a lot of times with these locations, particularly when you have a left-sided lesion and liver metastases, that's too big of an operation. It's two different incisions and different kinds of surgeons. So even when you know you're going for curative resection, you've got a sigmoid lesion and liver mets, they may want to do it as a staged procedure anyway because of different incisions. So a lot of times, you know, even if you were going to go in and take the primary out right from the get-go, you leave the liver lesions in, come back later. And I guess another consideration here is he really was symptomatic from the primary, which would be different than if you had a patient like this who had no symptoms, whether it was a rectal cancer or colon cancer. John, we've seen a real move, I think, away from just jumping right in in an asymptomatic patient with metastatic disease towards maybe holding off on surgery. Yeah, with this guy, you had to restore bowel flow, if you will. And you had several choices in how to do that. You could divert him really quickly and you go to chemotherapy. Obviously, patients don't like that, but in really tight lesions, that's clearly the best answer. Now our gastroenterologists are putting stents in these people to open them up to temporize, which then gives you a little wiggle room, so to speak, or go right to chemoradiation, which can be pretty effective local control, knowing that in tight lesions, at least, the initial response can often be edema and worsening. So, you know, your strategies are all out there and you make your choice based on the patient in front of you. 
I just want to refer quickly to the very innovative Memorial Sloan Kettering trial. They actually did chemo alone in neoadjuvant rectal cancer patients, not with METs, just local rectal cancers, and actually showed a very high partial response rate without radiation. So we're trying to put surgeons out of business while we're also trying to put radiation oncologists out of business. And this suggested that maybe chemo first with a very high response rate could have been a pretty viable option for this guy. But chemo radiation certainly appropriate. Yeah, and I actually interviewed Lynn Saltz at the GI Symposium this year, and he talked about this work. To elaborate on it further, it was actually a feasibility study that they did in 31 patients with clinical stage 2 and 3 rectal cancer, which excluded patients with T4 tumors. The patients were treated with pre-op Fulfox Bev without RT, and they had high rates of R0 resections and pathologic CRs. The local and distant recurrence data right now are immature, but so far what they have in this regard looks really good. That group has really come out with all kinds of interesting things related to primary surgery and, you know, really challenging, I think, in rectal cancer particularly, how we're going to be approaching this in the future. Kurt? What we did with this gentleman, we had presented him to the multidisciplinary tumor board, and it was really felt that he was going to need local therapy no matter what. The surgeon thought about resection but felt that he would absolutely have to have an APR. Since he was going to need chemotherapy and radiation regardless, it was felt that it would be reasonable to treat him neoadjuvantly, and then depending on how we're doing, we could then perhaps go back and readdress the liver lesion at some point in the future. So how was he treated? He was treated with a combination of capecitabine and radiation. He had a very good response. Although he had some local pain and discomfort from the radiation, his tumor-related symptoms dramatically decreased. We did a CAT scan shortly thereafter. We found that there was a slight increase in the size of one of the liver lesions. The sigmoid colon lesion had decreased somewhat. How did he tolerate the capecitabine? Any problems there? Actually, no. He actually did very well. He was treated with capecitabine Monday through Friday and held on the weekend and had really no significant side effects from the chemotherapy. So, John, what about this issue of capecitabine versus infusional 5-FU? It is the subject of this huge NSABP trial, and yet a lot of people in the community and investigators have kind of already kind of decided that, you know, it's going to be capecitabine. How do you approach it? Yeah, I'm in the I've moved on category. I reviewed this at last year's ASCO, and, you know, there were two parallel studies going on, capecitabine, Cape Ox, infusion 5-FU, infusion 5-FU Ox with radiation, and we learned a couple of things from that. One, Ox didn't really add significantly in the neoadjuvant setting, which surprised us all. We were hopeful that that would be an improvement in pathologic complete response rate and the like, but didn't pan out. And even though it's a cross-trial comparison, and everybody can throw things at me for that, the outcome from infusion 5-FU and capecitabine was the same. Same path CR rate, basically superimposable curves in big randomized studies. So I moved on. I frankly think the current neoadjuvant rectal trial is uninteresting and a waste of patience, and we should be moving on away from this 5-FU versus capecitabine argument. Well, hopefully, maybe they'll come out with some interesting translational work out of that, but who knows. So why don't you bring us up to date, Kurt, in terms of what happened to this man and what you saw when you visited him today? 
Well, he had a surgical resection of the rectal lesion. Because of the amount of shrinkage, they were actually able to do a low anterior resection and do an anastomosis. At the time of surgery, he had actually a low-grade adenocarcinoma. There was extensive necrosis of the tumor, and four of six resected lymph nodes were still positive for metastatic disease. Then we were considering him for a clinical trial, but because that would have involved an anti-EGFR inhibitor, the problem was he was KRAS positive and therefore not eligible for the trial. He started chemotherapy with Folfox bevacizumab, and he's had about three treatments thus far. How has he tolerated it? Remarkably well. He's had some problems with cold-induced discomfort, particularly on a hot day. He related to us drinking a can of soda, being smart enough to put something around it so it didn't hurt his hand, and then taking a nice chug and having his throat start hurting him. And have you re-imaged him yet or not yet? No, he's too early. He's just finished his third cycle of treatment. And as I say, he's done remarkably well. Anything you want to say, Kurt, about him as a person, what his family and work situation is, and how he sort of adjusted to this situation? Yeah, Actually, we had a very interesting conversation with him. In part, he's a recovering alcoholic, has been sober for 25 years, and takes great personal responsibility. He said, you know, I should have taken care of this sooner. I didn't. But it's here, and I'm going to deal with it, and that's the way it is. He is incredibly optimistic about everything and is really just interested in moving forward. I think he would be a very good advocate for other people in the same situation. What about his family situation and work? He's been married for 47 years, has a very supportive wife. He worked as a salesman, talks like a salesman, is actually semi-retired at this point. And I think leaves an incredibly rich and full life. Has not let the cancer really affect his life very much. John, what was your take on this man? Here's a 65-year-old guy who's never had a colonoscopy. And I think part of his personality, you know, the recovering alcoholic, the sales piece and all of this, he's a denier. There is no problem, I'm okay kind of guy. And he really was confronting that now, which was quite interesting. So the first place is that we need to change culture across the board to ensure that these folks don't get colon cancer in the first place. 15 years at least too late for his colonoscopy needs to go there. The debate about, you know, the power of chemotherapy in this kind of setting, right as an initial treatment versus our more traditional chemoradiation neoadjuvant approach, I think is the clinical question. And as we get more confident with our chemotherapy, I think we will see a less need to give chemoradiation from the initial assault and treat this systemically right from the beginning. The challenge when you resect these people on the back end is then what do you do? You know, should you give bevacizumab to this patient in the now adjuvant setting? How best to handle them? And clearly those are some questions we need the answers to as we go down. The evidence for post-operative chemotherapy is really soft and circumstantial at best right now. It is the standard. It is what we do. But I think some of the newer trials that are being looked at will help address that. What about the point you brought up, John? You know, is this a possibly curable situation? You know, he seems to have liver-only disease. You have a surgeon, you know, maybe who's not doing hepatic resections all the time, telling you that it's not resectable. What are you thinking about him, John? Do you think he should see another surgeon? 
Absolutely. I think this is a guy where he needs to get in front of a good liver surgeon. We've talked about this already today. It was in the back of Kurt's mind all along. And, you know, the question of timing. And I think, you know, at this next re-imaging with evidence of a decent response, actually whether or not evidence of decent response, probably now is the time to pause from the chemotherapy, maybe hold off on a cycle of bevacizumab, get him teed up and get him in front of a liver surgeon. Whether radiofrequency ablation or surgical resection, a little bit debated in my head. That's still surgical resection is the gold standard. But sometimes radiofrequency ablation is an appropriate alternative to that. What are your thoughts about this, Kurt? Do you have a surgeon that you feel comfortable with, that either the surgeon who saw this man or another surgeon that you feel you know, has enough experience to deal with this kind of problem? Yeah, it was interesting because John and I had talked this over, and I think what we would do is as soon as he finishes six cycles of treatment, he'll be re-imaged. And if there's no evidence of progressive disease, I think what we would probably do is at that point have him see somebody who does liver surgery on a daily basis, drop off the bevacizumab in the last cycle of treatment, have him go get taken care of, and then reinstitute treatment there afterward. John, there was going to be a trial. I don't know whether it actually, and I've been hearing from the NSCVP, Nick Petrelli and other people trying to look at the question of pre-op chemo in patients who already are resectable. This man maybe doesn't fit that category. Is that going to go through? And where are we right now in this debate? You have somebody who presents with resectable disease, whether to take him right to surgery or get pre-op systemic therapy. Yeah, Mike Chody's the PI of this clinical trial. It is going through IRBs right now and being opened. It's pre-op versus post-op chemotherapy. You know, the Nordlinger study doesn't answer that. It's perioperative versus surgery alone and showed a small benefit. It doesn't really ask the other all-important questions. You know, we don't know the answer to that, and we all sort of make judgment calls at the time. Patients with synchronous hepatic metastases like this guy, we tend to give chemotherapy first. Folks with a long disease-free interval, you know, a couple of years and now spring up with a couple of METs, we figure that might be a good patient for surgery first kind of approach. I don't think there's a right answer to that, and I think it's the judgment of the surgeon and the medical oncologist and, frankly, the patient to really factor in the best decision-making. I think the answer ultimately is surgery and chemotherapy. The advantage to preoperative chemo is you've got your own little bioassay, if you will. But the counterpunch to that is that that really hasn't demonstrated an increase in survival. So the surgery is the key. You don't want to miss the opportunity to pull the roots on those weeds, as I like to say. Any cost, reimbursement, copay issues here? I asked the guy about his, you know, access to, here's a 65-year-old Medicare patient. Was it hard getting capecitabine? And it really wasn't. He said he had the Connecticut insurance on top of Medicare, and the office was just fabulous in helping them pre-cert. So, you know, we always talk about the barriers to oral chemotherapy. This was clearly not the case for this guy. It was quite simple for him. One of the things that we've done in our office is that we have somebody, and basically all they do is pre-cert oral chemotherapy. And as a result, you know, it's a burden for us as practitioners, but it's a clear benefit for patients. You mentioned that he did well with the Fulfox bevacizumab. Any bevacizumab issues, hypertension, proteinuria, nosebleeds? 
No, not at all. And we, as a practice, we always follow blood pressure. We wind up doing dipstick urines, really, with each cycle. And in this case, it has not. It is interesting to me that you mentioned the issue of nosebleeds, although that has not been his problem. We're seeing this increasingly as a problem with bevacizumab, and it's getting to be a real bugaboo how to handle it. Any comments on that, John? And also why it happens? I've heard people talking about maybe it's the drying of the nasal mucosa. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, you're giving drugs that are already hard on the mucosa in general, and, you know, you thin it out a little bit, and the balance between bleeding and clotting and bevacizumab is still a little bit of a mystery for us all. So we see it a lot. If you ask, you get a lot of yeses to that. Very rarely is it serious where you're in the ER packing noses and things like that, at least in our experience. But very common that you get a little pink on the tissue, that kind of thing, if you ask. As far as the proteinuria, I hate to say it, but we don't look. You know, what am I going to do? And I don't really believe I've ever seen a case of nephrotic syndrome in a patient with these drugs. You know, if I really thought that the medicine wasn't helping and I'd pull it back, sure. Hypertension is another issue. I've got a guy right now that's about to go on a cruise, all excited, comes in, in fact, yesterday into clinic with a blood pressure of 180 over 90, already on two BP meds, and has been afraid he'd have a stroke on this cruise, right? So it's really the first time in a long time that I've ever held bevacizumab for blood pressure. But I said, you know what, I'll sleep better if while you're on your cruise, you're not getting a dose today. It's really amazing taking a step back and thinking about the issues we've been discussing today, how complex and profound the human issues are in medical oncology practice. We were commenting, it's what we love about our job. It's sort of real intense primary care. You know, it's, you become a family member. Actually, one of the patients, you know, felt sorry for us. You know, she's sitting here with metastatic colon cancer and says, oh, you're, you know, the classic, oh, your job must be so hard. And in a sense, it's what we love about it is the chance to have these discussions with patients and help guide them. I was also reflecting, and I thought where you were going to go with that question, is how different oncology practices are. I mean, the nature of the selection of patients that I get in Washington, D.C. at a comprehensive cancer center, you know, everybody's, you know, scratching for that next, you know, 12 hours of life or come on, we can do this or give me another trial or something. Whereas the theme I really got from your patients today was one of you know, contentment on the planet, you know, bad set of cards, but understanding where they were and making the best of it. And not this sense of panic that I get in my patients a lot. And maybe, you know, as we talked, you only sent the starting lineup in today. But it was really a fabulous experience for me to see that other side different from the patient that I see day in and day out. Yeah, I think one of the, I think, I just don't know in my practice, one of the things that's been changing is that we talk about, I think I often use discussion about living wills as an entree to talk about end of life, talk about what people really want, and to get a sense. And that helps guide me of where I'm going with people. 
But I think one of the good things is, I think we talk about this far more than we ever used to. And John and I were saying that as we get more experienced as physicians, as we get a little bit more gray hair, that we feel more comfortable to discuss these very uncomfortable things with people and really help them through to make decisions that are so critical for what time they have left. And I find, too, that if you once you've broken the ice, yeah. you can see the relief. Yeah. They want to talk about it, too. It's very rare that they'll really cut you off and say, we're not going there occasionally. But most of the time, it's you can see it in their face. I'm glad we're talking about this. This is, you know, several of the couples we met today of your patients. You know, you could just see that these were conversations they've been having at home already. And they were, you know, rediscussing it with us today. One of the things that I've learned to do is I sort of ask, you know, it's the sort of ask permission. And I say, you know, I'd like to talk to you about where we're going and in the event that things don't go well, how you would like to approach things. And people are almost uniformly open. I have had people who say, you know, I don't want to go there. Treat me the way you want, but I'm not ready to have that conversation now. And then in time, we do have the conversation. So let's wrap this up, and I wanted to get your takes before we finished on what actually happened here today. Let's start with you, John. Well, everything was unexpected. I didn't know whether I was going to be white-coating it and following from room to room, billing slips and CBCs and decision-making on the day versus these more, you know, really focused meetings. They were wonderful. I mean, you know, the value of, I'll bet your patients and you will forever be bonded. The patients we saw today to do this extra time, no billing slips, you know, no exam room, just coming in and talking about their cancer and life and relationships and goals. And, you know, at least in my practice, we try to slip that in in the three minutes we have left at the end of our meetings, right? And then we have to move on. And it's sort of, you know, as we talk about healthcare reform and how we get paid and all of those things, quite honestly, the 30 minutes we spent with each of those patients and their families today was probably more valuable in the long run than any 15-minute, you know, chemo next discussion, at least from my side. So, and I was actually being both impressed of your care and your relationship with your patients something that we as attendings almost never get to do anymore. Our little ducklings come and watch us be doctors. And again, we joked that each of us thinks we're the best doctor, right? And I said today that I now know I'm not the best doctor because I found the best doctor. But, you know, the idea of going in with another doc in their setting and having a discussion, you know, not a bad refresher for us all about how we take care of patients and learning from others so I was delighted. It was intense. It was more intense than I was expecting, quite honestly, of having to stay on my toes. I actually accused him about halfway through of producing actors instead of patients because they were, it was almost rehearsed, it felt, on how perfectly they understood their situation and the like, and I think a testament to your care and, and your relationship with them. So it was tiring, intense. I learned a lot. And I think it was great to share each other's perspective on the patient care. Yeah, that reminds me. I always have these little pre-clinic meetings like I did with you two this morning. I, I forgot to tell you, expect to be tired because people always say that they're exhausted. They think it's no big deal. We're just going to go see a bunch of patients. Kurt, what was it like for you? 
First of all, I was amazed how my patients, as soon as I mentioned it to them, they were very enthusiastic and kept saying to me, when is he coming? When is he coming? It was a chance for me to talk to people and to hear. I learned a lot more. I think I know my patients, but I learned a lot of things that I never knew about them, and it brought out a lot of feelings and was uh, just, as you say, exhausting. And John and I looked at each other and we said, we, at one point we just said, God, we're both exhausted. We could never stand to be a psychiatrist and listen to like this all day long. But I loved it, Neil, and I'm grateful for the experience.